Corinthians 5, and I'm starting in verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all and hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for this particular letter, this, this very old letter that's been read over and over and over again by your people down through the centuries and that now we have had a chance to look at. I pray that you would, as we think about the closing words that you inspired, I pray that you would help us to think rightly about what you're saying here and about how we ought to apply it. And then, Lord, I pray for your help in applying it. We recognize that in our own strength, we're not able to be the kind of people and the kind of church that you've called us to be, but with your help, with your empowering presence, we can. And so we're asking for your help, believing that you will grant it. Amen. All right, well, throughout the book of Thessalonians, as we've looked at all the verses, we've, what we've seen is that Paul has issued in this letter a number of instructions to the church at Thessalonica, and so really to all Christians, about what it looks like to live a Christ-centered life or to be a Christ-centered church. And this is a comprehensive vision of faithfulness. It includes, you'll remember, that we have heard instructions about what it is that we are supposed to believe as followers of Jesus. Who it is and how it is we're supposed to worship. How we ought to respond as God's people to persecution. How and why we ought to pursue sexual purity. How we ought to love one another. What to expect during the end times and how we ought to respond as God's people during the end times. And then Paul closes with some summary instructions about how to put all of these things into practice. And basically, Paul's final move in this letter is to cause us to lift our eyes up off of ourselves and off of our own effort, off of our own works, and he puts the focus squarely on God and God's work in our lives. And I think that this is Paul's way of saying, yes, God's calling on your life and on your church is comprehensive. When God calls us, he calls us to lay down our lives, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow him. He calls us to lay down every single area of our lives and he expects that we will conform our lives and our church to his revealed will. But he is with us, he is for us, he is at work in us, and ultimately he will empower that which he commands. That's good news because none of us could do this apart from his help. 
It reminds, when I thought about that, I thought of a very famous example of how, how a Christian from, from history worked this out. I was thinking of Augustine, lived in the fourth century, and um, Augustine's story is well known because he wrote a book about it called The Confessions, and in, in that book, he talks about how prior to coming to faith in Christ, he had, a, he had a faithful mom, he had a Christian mom, Monica, but, but he himself was not a believer, was not faithful early on in his young adulthood. He actually lived a pretty rebellious life. He had accumulated a number of sinful habits in his life. And then when he came to faith by God's grace, he now needed to overhaul his life. He recognized that. He needed to act in a way that honored Christ, and he hadn't previously been doing that. But what he found when he tried to reorient his life and live a Christ-centered life, it was really hard. He had a really hard time breaking the patterns of sin that had been established in his early life. And in fact, he was a failure at living a Christ-centered life by his own description. He just couldn't get it. And so finally, in despair, he prayed this prayer to God, He said, God, command whatever you will for my life, but then give me what you command. In other words, what he was saying is that, Lord, I understand that I am yours. You made me. You redeemed me. I belong to you. So, God, you're well within your rights to command anything you want from me. But you're going to have to help me to obey those commands because I'm having a really hard time, God, with this holiness thing. That was Augustine's prayer. And of course, of course, God loves to give that kind of help to his people. And this is what Paul's saying at the end of 1 Thessalonians. He's, Paul, throughout the course of this letter, he has issued a number of commands to the church from God. But then he ends by saying, all right, I know that was a lot that you just heard, but here's the thing. God himself is going to do this work in us. God himself is going to empower us to obey these commands. That's really good news. So Paul, Paul begins this closing section with an exhortation not to quench the Holy Spirit, right? It's the Holy Spirit in us who's going to do this sanctifying work, right? And so we don't want to quench the Spirit. We don't want to put the Spirit out as he is doing this work in our lives. The Holy Spirit is often associated with the symbol of fire, right? Probably, that was probably most vividly on display if you think of when the Holy Spirit descended on the church on Pentecost. That's Acts chapter 2. We're told that the Spirit descended and, uh, as tongues of fire resting on the heads of the apostles, right? And so the Holy Spirit is like a fire. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit is fire, but the Holy Spirit is like a fire, and so we're told not to quench. Don't put out that Holy Spirit fire in your life. The Holy Spirit is the means by which God is present with his people. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerated our hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one who has enabled us to turn to God in repentance, to turn away from our sin, and to turn to God in repentance, to call on the name of Jesus in faith and to receive the forgiveness of our sins. The Holy Spirit does all that in us and then the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives. 
right? At work, actively at work in us, shaping us and empowering us to be the kind of people that God has called and created us to be, right? He doesn't just create us and call us and then leave us to do that work on our own, but he's right there actively involved by his spirit, making us the kind of people that he wants us to be. So the Holy Spirit is the power of the Christian life. Right? Trying to live the Christian life in our own strength, by our own works, right? just an exercise of our will, right? just be a good person. That, like the, uh, as, uh, as an illustration of that, this is what I picture that like. Uh, Christians who are trying to be good on their own, right? do it in their own strength, by their own self-discipline, I think of it as like pushing a vacuum cleaner around the house, but not plugging it in. Right? And then expecting that just by pushing this vacuum cleaner around the house, even though it's not plugged in, that somehow that's going to clean my carpets. It won't. It's that all you're doing there is pushing dirt around, if that's what you're doing. Right? But when you do the very same action, right? Nothing different, the very same action, but this time it's actually plugged in and turned on, now your floors get clean. Right? Having the Holy Spirit at work in us is like being plugged into the power source. Right? It is the only way that we will be able to obey these commands from God. Galatians 5, we're told, walk by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. That means aligning our values, our actions, our lives with God's commands. Right? The opposite of doing that is to quench the Spirit. Right? What do fires need in order to keep burning? They need fuel. Well, what is the fuel of the Holy Spirit in our lives? It's Holy Scripture. The power of the Spirit in our lives runs on the truth of God's Word. To quench the Spirit is to deprive ourselves of the power, the fuel of God's Word. What would happen if, to your car if you tried to save money by filling it with water instead of gasoline? Well, you would save money for a little while but you wouldn't get very far. Well, what if instead you filled up your car with grape juice instead of gasoline? Well, again, you're quenching the power of your car because that's not what your car was made to run on. That's how it is with us when we try to run our lives by filling them up with anything other than the truth of God's Word. Right? We weren't made to run that way. That's the wrong kind of fuel in order to run. God's truth is supposed to be the fuel for our lives. God's truth is the immovable foundation for all of life. That's why Paul says, don't quench the spirit. Don't treat prophecies with contempt. Test them all, hold on to what's good, and reject every kind of evil. All right, well, what is that, what is that talking about? What is that phrase about testing prophecies all about? Well, many theologians understand this to be a reference to the practice in the early church of having people stand up during a service and give a prophetic word from the Lord. It seems that that may have been a common practice before the canon of Scripture was closed, before all the books of the Bible had been written and gathered into a, the collection that we call the New Testament, Someone would stand up during a service and share a word from the Lord. And were they just supposed to blindly follow that word? No. No, they were supposed to test those words. How? By measuring those words against the truth of Scripture. 
Right? In their case, at that time, they would, have only, that would have only, they would have only had the Old Testament until the rest of the books were written and gathered together. And that continues to be the way that we measure all truth claims. This is the way that we avoid quenching the Spirit by cross-referencing all of our beliefs against the unchanging truth of God's Word. Failing to do that, failing to base our beliefs and our actions on the truth of God's Word is like pouring water on the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That is to quench the Spirit. Sometimes you see Christians walking around and they're confused and they're kind of soggy and damp. They're not sure what to believe in the world where everyone is making some kind of truth claim or some sort of moral claim. I'm not sure what to believe. Well, in that case, that person has quenched the power of the Holy Spirit in their life by failing to test all truth claims by the standard of Scripture. Right? How does one decide, to decide who to listen to, who to believe in a world where there are so many voices saying so many things, making competing truth claims? Right? The cultural answer to that question is that you just follow your heart. Right? That's what our culture tells us to do. Just believe what you think is right in your heart and then act accordingly. Follow your heart. Well, that is not how the Bible tells us to discern truth. It tells us to test everything. That's what Paul says here. Test everything against the truths revealed by the Spirit in Scripture. This is what the Bereans, remember the Bereans from Acts 17? That's what they were commended for doing way back in the first century. And it is still what the church is supposed to, to, to do. In Acts 17, you remember, we, we talked about this at the beginning of this series in 1 Thessalonians. What happened was, Paul and his companions are kicked out of Thessalonica for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they have to flee, and they show up in Berea. And when they show up in Berea, they preach the same message that got them in hot water in Thessalonica. But here's what happens in Berea. It says, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They're, they're commended for that. They didn't just blindly receive the words that Paul was saying and say, Oh, well, I guess if he's saying it, then it must be true. They didn't do that, and they're commended for not doing that. What they did do is hear the words that Paul was saying, and they said, well, this guy claims to be a prophet. He claims to know something that's true. Why don't we search the scriptures and see if these things that he's saying are true? And they did that, and the scriptures affirmed the message that Paul was speaking, and the Bible says that they were to be commended for that, and that is what we are all still supposed to do examine the scriptures, test our beliefs according to the scriptures, and see if these things are so. That is where the life of faithfulness begins. Not by searching our own hearts, not by deciding what we want to believe, not by searching the internet, not by hearing what everyone else believes, but by searching the scriptures and discovering what God says is true and then aligning our beliefs and actions with that. That is how we fuel the fire of the Spirit in us. And to fail to do that is to quench the fire of the Spirit in us. All right, so our source material when it comes to establishing our beliefs and our actions is God's Word. 
That takes the focus off of ourselves, our own brains, our own intellect, right? It's not up to us to figure it out. It's already been written, and it is recorded in God's Word. Now, the final point takes that one step further, and it makes it clear that this whole project of our sanctification, the whole process by which you and I, the church, is increasingly formed into the image of Christ as we journey to heaven, that whole work is actually God's work from start to finish. God's doing that, not us. Our lives are the raw material. Our church is the raw material. God is the artist, and he's making something beautiful and unique with each one of us. And when it's done, it's the artist and not the raw material that gets the glory. This is how Paul says it right at the end of the letter. He says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through, all the way, fully sanctified. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Notice that. He doesn't say, you are faithful, so you get out there and do it. He says, the one who calls us is faithful, and he will do it. It's so important that Paul ends on this hopeful note of our dependence on God's sovereign work in our sanctification, right? Because throughout the letter, as I've already pointed out, Paul has given many, many instructions, commands about how God's people are to conduct ourselves in a manner that is befitting the name of the Lord, right? To act in a way that is befitting the family of God. That can start to feel overwhelming, and discouraging if you think it's up to you to do all that stuff, right? If all you had was the list of commands that Paul issues, God issues through Paul in the book of 1 Thessalonians, that would feel overwhelming and probably discouraging. I once, I once heard someone describe his experience of church. He wasn't talking about this church or any church that I have attended, but he, he was just saying, this is what it feels like when I go to church. He said, I walk in, I sit down, I listen to the sermon, and I feel like during the sermon, the pastor drops another rock into my backpack. And then I get up and I walk out that much more weighed down with yet another rule to follow. All right, well, that's a real description. That's an honest description. I know that there are lots of people who have similar experiences in church, but Christianity is not supposed to feel like that. The life of, of discipleship to Jesus, the life of obedience to God, is supposed to be a joyful life, a blessed life. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's not, it's not a heavy burden that he puts on us. He said that explicitly. It's not heavy. It's light. So how are we to avoid that heavy feeling that feeling that I have a backpack full of rocks and every time I hear another command from the Bible, I feel like another rock just got dropped into my backpack. How do we avoid that? Well, one way to avoid it, this is the wrong way, but one way to avoid it is just never talk about our duty, ever. Right? We can just turn the word duty into a bad word. Tell ourselves that God absolutely does not care how we act any Christian who talks about obedience to God's law clearly doesn't understand God's grace. Okay, the problem with that approach is that the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, are, it's absolutely jam-packed with laws, and commands, and instructions, and expectations of what God expects of his people. All over the Bible, 
pick a book, any book of the Bible. They're full of commands from God, instructions about how he expects his people to act. We cannot ignore that, and we cannot pretend that God didn't mean it when he issued those instructions. But on the other hand, it feels overwhelming, it feels discouraging to think about obeying all those commands because we, me and you, are flawed and fallible and sinful and selfish individuals. So again, I ask, how are we to talk about our Christian duty as members of God's family while avoiding the burden of guilt that comes from the failure to measure up to God's standard? Well, there are there are two solutions to that problem built right into the heart of Christian theology. The first one is the amazing truth of the gospel that all of our sins, all of mine and your sins, are paid for. Past, present, and future, ones we've done, ones we haven't even yet done, all of our missteps, all of our failures to live up to God's perfect standard, all of it has already been atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are totally and completely forgiven and God would never, ever ask us to pay for something that his son has already paid for in full. That truth alone has the power to lift the guilt off our shoulders. Christians don't need to walk around with guilt on our shoulders. Yes, we're sinful, but all of our sins have been forgiven in Christ and the burden is lifted. But also, even as we strive and strain every muscle to conform our lives to God's teaching, we need to be reminded that to the extent that we are successful in obeying God, that is actually God at work in us, conforming our lives to his will. That's what's being said here. God himself will sanctify us. God commands the work, and God will do it. He is both the issuer of the commands and the empowerer of us to obey those commands. God himself will make us pure. God himself will empower us to walk in his ways. God can keep our spirit, soul, and body blameless at the coming of the Lord. And God is faithful. Even when we're not, God is faithful. And so even though we are called to invest our own effort in our pursuit of holiness, we are. At the same time, even as we work to pursue God, that's actually God himself at work in us, giving us the desire and the power to pursue him. It's like, here's another image. I, I, I always try to link these ideas to just practical images. So here's one that I picture. When my kids were little, kind of before we moved here, back when we lived in Milwaukee, sometimes I would allow them to sit on my lap while I was driving. <laughs> and just in the alley, not on the main street, don't worry. Uh, in the, and, and we lived on an alley, and, and so sometimes I'd where you'd get to the alley, maybe driving home from school, and I'd stop, and then I'd let them come over and sit on my lap. And we would drive down the alley, and the kids, they would drive the car. Now, were they really driving? I, I hate to spoil it, but no, you, you weren't. <laughs> they, uh, they, they, were, they were sort of driving. What, we, what they would do is they would hold the wheel on the top, and they would think that they were driving, and they were impacting our course a little bit. I would give them a little bit of control, but my hands were underneath that wheel the whole time, holding tight, making sure they were safe, 
making sure we got where we needed to go, making sure that we did not crash into anybody else's garage or fence or child. We, I was holding carefully, making sure. Okay? That's the image that I get, that I think about, when I read these last words of 1 Thessalonians. I see God holding the bottom of the wheel and me holding the top. Right? I hear him exhorting and encouraging me to keep pursuing him, right? to keep the car on the road, to stay on the path, to avoid the temptations of sin, to not hit the garage, to not hit the fence. Right? He's exhorting me to do those things and my hands are on top. And I'm trying to do those things. I do pursue him. I do put forth effort. But the whole time, he's at work in me. The whole time, he's holding the bottom of the wheel and he's making sure that we are going to arrive safely. I believe that with all my heart, not because I trust myself to get us there, but because I trust God and I know that he's holding the wheel. I believe that's the point Paul's making at the end of 1 Thessalonians. God's driving, and he'll get us home. And then Paul ends with a call to unity and community. Paul says, pray for us. That's a humble request from the Apostle Paul, leader of the church, but asking for prayer. Pray for us. In other words, we're all in this together. Paul's saying, and we, and we need you. We need you. We need one another. Our prayers for one another bind us together. They make a difference. God works through the prayers of his people. And then Paul says, and greet one another with a holy kiss. Again, an emphasis on unity and community. Greeting is just a, is a simple sign of affection, right? It's a way of saying, I like being around you. I'm glad we're together. My kids and I were recently talking about cultural or religious practices that set one group of people apart from the rest of the world. You could probably think of some. Uh, the ones that we came up with as we were talking about this, my daughter, my daughter brought this up. We, we thought of the way that Orthodox, Orthodox Jewish men um, let their sideburns grow long and curly. And when you see that, as soon as you see that, you know that that person is an Orthodox Jew. Or the dot on the forehead of some Hindus or the headscarf on some Muslim women. And my kids were saying that those are indicators, and as soon as you see that, you immediately know something about that person's beliefs. It, it, without even talking to that person, right? You see a Jewish man with the, with the curls on the, on the sideburns, you immediately know something about what that person believes. Without ever speaking to him, you can see it. And one of my kids said, I wish there was something like that for us. I wish that there was something like that for Christians so that the rest of the world could just look at me and know, without asking anything, just know that I'm a Christian. And I said, well, okay, we don't have a uniform or a dress code, but there are things that are supposed to mark our lives and make us stand out from the rest of the world. And then me and my kids tried to think about what some of those countercultural Christian values might be that cause us to stand out. Well, this is one of them. This, this mutual affection amongst God's people, right? We pray for one another, we greet one another, we care for one another, we love one another. These, th this is supposed to set us apart, right? Isn't that what Jesus said? Right? By this, 
Shall all people know that you are my disciples? And he didn't, he didn't, he didn't give us an article to wear. He didn't say, buy this and give us like a, a jacket or gloves. But this, this is how people will know. Just wear this. No, no, no. He said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. That'll be the sign. That'll be the thing that sets you apart from the rest of the world. By this, the world will know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. This is why Paul tells us, greet one another with a holy kiss. Let the whole world know how much you love each other. Let that be an indicator of the truth of your message. Let, let that be a testimony to the power of the Spirit in your midst. And then he goes on, I charge you before the Lord, have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. In other words, doctrine, theology, our, third, our shared beliefs about God's truth, this is the one of the things that unites us, right? This is why we gather together and sit under the authority of God's word. It's a communal shared experience. It's a meal that we eat together because God's truth unites us as a body. And then the final words, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. As I've mentioned in a previous sermon, Paul always ends his letters to the churches by expressing his prayer that grace will go with us. It's as if he's saying that this letter is jam-packed full of grace from start to finish, and now as you go into the world, may this grace go with you. Take it with you. Don't leave it, but take it with you. In fact, let grace cling to you like the smell of smoke on a campfire, right? If someone's by a campfire for hours and then they leave and go somewhere else and now you're talking to that person, you know immediately where they've been. You can smell it on them, right? A campfire smoke sticks to you. Paul's saying, let grace be like that. Let it cling to you so that when you leave the reading of this letter, it'll be on you <laughs> and you'll carry it with you when you go and people will smell grace on you. May the grace go with you. May you be a carrier and a spreader of God's grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this letter and all that it contains. There's so much packed into, into this short epistle. And I pray, Lord, that now that we have concluded our study of this letter, that it would not be the conclusion of our application of this letter. I pray that you would help us to pursue you with all of our might. But as we pursue, I pray that you would help us to be mindful of the fact that it is you in us who are shaping our desires, who have given us that desire for holiness and to pursue you. And it's your spirit that is empowering us as we pursue holiness in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray for each of us that we would, the vacuum would be plugged in that we would be tapped into the power source of the Holy Spirit. And I thank you, Lord, for the promise that it is you who will bring us home safety, safely. It is you who will sanctify us completely. And I pray that when we feel frustrated or discouraged by our lack of growth and maybe in a particular area of our life, I pray that we would be encouraged and reminded that while we hold the top of the wheel, you are holding the bottom firmly. You are the driver, and you will bring us home. In Christ's name, amen.